Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear page by page. This is page 452. Much brocade for my taste, but tonight I made a grudging bow to fashion as I would be seated to the left of Melanin Lackless. Stapes had staged six formal dinners for me in the last three days, and I felt prepared for anything. When I arrived outside the banquet hall, I expected the hardest part of the evening would be feigning interest in the food. But while I might have been prepared for the meal, I was not prepared for the sight of Melwyn Lackless herself. Luckily, my stage training took hold and I moved smoothly through the ritual motion of smiling and offering my arm. She nodded courteously and we made our procession to the table together. There were tall candelabra with dozens of candles, engraved silver pitchers, held hot water for hand bowls, and cold water for drinking glasses. Old vases with elaborate floral arrangements sweetened the air. Cornucopia overflowed with polished fruit. Personally, I found it gaudy, but it was traditional, a showcase for the wealth of the host. I walked the Lady Lackless to the table and held out her chair. I had avoided looking in her direction as we walked the length of the room, but as I helped her into her seat, her profile struck me with such a strong resemblance that I couldn't help but stare. I knew her. I was certain of it. But I couldn't for the life of me remember where we might have met. As I took my seat beside her, I tried to guess where I might have seen her before. If the lackless lands weren't a thousand miles away... I would have thought I knew her from the university, but that was ridiculous. The lackless heir wouldn't study so far from home. My eyes wandered over maddeningly familiar features. Might I have met her at the Aeolian? That didn't seem likely. I would have remembered she was strikingly lovely. With a strong jaw and dark brown eyes, I'm sure if I'd seen her there... Do you see aught that interests you? She asked without turning to look at me. Her tone was pleasant, but accusation lay not far beneath the surface. I had been staring. Hardly a minute at the table, and I was already putting my elbow in the butter. I beg your pardon, but I am a keen observer of faces, and yours struck me. Mellowin turned to look at me, her irritation fading a bit. Are you a Turguar? Turguars claim to be able to tell your personality or future from your face, eyes, and the shape of your head. Pure-blooded vintage superstition. I dabbled a bit, milady. Really? What does my face tell you, then? She looked up and away from me. I made a show of looking over Melon's features, taking note of her pale end of the page. I'm Nick. I'm Jordana. And I'm Jeremy. Jordana, is it pure-blooded vintage or pure-blooded vintic? Vintage. What did I say? Ah, mine says vintic. Ooh. You said vintage, which is correct, but mine says vintic. Mine Ooh, also says vintage. Hmm. Uh, I guess, uh... Rothfuss has decided that it is more correct to say vintage than vintic. Well, I also think that he said vintage elsewhere in the book. So I wonder if that, if like 
in you know earlier drafts of the book maybe he hadn't quite decided on what the correct term was and then it's you know the copy editor like missed this one instance of Vintic the first time around that's likely uh jeremy i think you were going to suggest we play the pronunciation game yes a game we haven't played in a long time long time so jordana you said turquoise yeah i t- i take that back i think it's turquoise I would have said uh, Turagior, but yes. I actually prefer what Jordana said. I like Turaguar. Turaguar does have a nice ring to it, but I think it is Turagior. I also am relatively sure it's not a real word. Yeah, um, I, I googled so. it. It does not appear anywhere else. It, Google was like, I think you spelled that wrong. And I was like, I didn't Google. Please tell me what it is. And it's like, well, here's the wise man's fear. So yeah. there you go. But it does sound, you know, I'm sure there are other ways other methods of divination that uh, have used that it's, you know, it's like palm palmistry, right. Or, um, or tassiography. It's just another kind of divination. Ooh. What is tassiography? Uh, the reading of tea leaves. Ooh, very cool. Uh, but it also is a little bit like phrenology, which I find very funny. What is phrenology? Phrenology is a racist pseudoscience that has been discredited for years that imagined that you could determine key aspects of like a person's intelligence and personality by measuring the the proportions of their skull and their face. Oh, God. You know? Yes, and it has uh, seen a resurgence in the Silicon Valley ghoulish types. Really? By other, oftentimes by other names, but it's just, you know, a lot of the stuff they talk about is, is when they're, you know, talk about race science and shit is just phrenology by another name. Right. But they're not list they're not literally getting out the calipers and measuring the distance from your jaw to your brow. No, but they're espousing a lot of the same rhetoric. Okay. Well, that's no fun. If they're going to do it, they got to bring back the calipers. That's what I say. <laughs> oh yeah, you gotta screw in the monocle and and then say, "Oh my, he has the Asiatic brow." Yes, that's what, ah yes, yes, the prognathous jaw of a of a of a simple man, perhaps a farm laborer. Also, you'll the one like element of phrenology that you'll still see in like otherwise innocuous contexts is like psychoanalysts and and psychologists will often have like an old phrenological like diagram of the brain in their office somewhere. Yeah, but they're just cool to look at. Yeah, they're cool to look at, exactly. Uh, Like a lot of old-fashioned medical bullshit. I learned something really interesting about old-fashioned medical bullshit that's been discredited. Apparently, Stockholm Syndrome was uh, concocted out of whole cloth by a psychiatrist to discredit a woman who was speaking out against that same psychiatrist. Yep. Yep, famously, it's bullshit. It's not a real thing. Yep. I, I was dimly aware that it was discredited, but I didn't realize how transparently uh, it, it was invented by some asshole who was trying to shut up someone who was criticizing him. Um, Wait, isn't Stockholm yeah, Syndrome has... the thing everyone thinks that Belle has from Beauty and the Beast? Yes. Stockholm Syndrome is the the idea that like if you're like kidnapped and taken hostage, that over time you will come to lo- sympathize with and even love your captor. Oh. And it like it was first like it's not an old idea. Like it came about in, like the seventies. It's like from the like Patty Hearst killings, I think. It's it predates the Patty Hearst killings, but um kind of a similar thing. There was a hostage taking that went on. The hostage taker's accomplice treated the hostages very, very well, and the police 
who this this woman who was a hostage and the hostage's accomplice uh, were speaking to uh, treated the hostages very, very badly uh, and basically tried to bait the hostage taker into a violent con- um, confrontation so that they could kill him. And she eventually, as part of the conversation with the police, said, look, like, let me and the hostage takers go. I will I, I will be a hostage, but I will... Uh, you know, I trust them to take to take care of me and then let me go when they escape. And the police said, no, you literally they said, we prefer that you die, uh, but you can take some solace in knowing that you died at your post. She was a, a bank employee. Uh, and then after the fact, when she was speaking out against this, especially uh, against the psychologist who was the hostage negotiator, she was saying in, you know, to the papers that this guy was trying to provoke a violent confrontation. Uh, he totally mishandled it. He, you know, caused the hostage taker to behave in a more erratic. Uh, he antagonized him. Basically, this psychologist invented this syndrome uh, and said she had it. He's like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's got Stockholm syndrome. Interesting. Exactly. Right. Uh, and it worked. It totally worked. The papers all bought it. It's been used many, many times to discredit the very real grievances of uh, women, in particular. Uh, since then. All right. Mini history lesson. Love it. Right. So what's on the page that we can talk about instead? Well, I think this, the similarity between Mel and Lockless and the person that Quoth thinks he's recognizing, which is his mother, is... Absolutely true. Yeah. That's on the page. And the reason I think that he can't place her is that he can't imagine someone looking like his mother. Like he... His recollection doesn't really go that far back. The very idea that she's familiar because she's related to his mother is like not a possibility at all. So he's looking too recently in his memory. He's going, you know, she's familiar, but I must've seen her in the university or in uh, somewhere else in Severin or in Tarbine. Uh, but nope, she is the sibling to his mother. Also, doesn't her description sound a bit like Denna? I'm not suggesting they're related. I'm just saying that he might uh, have a type and it may be because uh, Denna reminds him of his mom a bit. Ah, yes. Paging Dr. Freud, another famously discredited <laughs> psychoanalyst. But also, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a thing. And I, there's kind of two possibilities that I see here for like why he's not making this obvious connection. And one of them is that like his parents have taken on this kind of like mythic quality in his mind. He, when he thinks about them at all, he doesn't really like think about them as being people. They're almost these like idealized forms. He's probably not remembering accurately what they looked like. He's remembering like an idealized way that they looked like, but also he represses his memories of his parents most of the time because it's too painful for him to think about them. Right. So like, he doesn't think about his parents that much on purpose. So maybe he doesn't make the connection because he's just constantly repressing that memory. I think that is very likely as well. Yeah, certainly possible. It's just, it's not like, it's obvious that the reason he recognizes her and what we're meant to gather from it as readers at this point is that. Well, but I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I mean, I don't know if we are necessarily meant to make the connection to Mellow and Lackless, between Mellow and Lackless and Quote's mom at this point in the book. Okay. No, I, I think a first-time reader, you're not expected to. It's not like an important piece of inf- information that if you don't get, you will not understand. But it's the kind of thing that if you are uh, a psycho uh, and you are podcasting a page of this book every day, it's the kind of thing that you might point to and say, ah, another juicy morsel of evidence 
for my ever less crackpot theory. Yes, I suppose I should have been more specific in that what I'm saying is that he's not trying to hide anything on this page. He's not being sneaky about information. Yeah, I think where we can all, you know, shake hands like the Predator meme is that this is like something that he intends for you to notice on your reread and go, oh. And we're also, I expect, meant to rack our brains and say, oh, who who is she supposed to remind him of? And much like Quoth, we aren't meant necessarily to think that far back. Or the idea that she's related to his mom might be too far-fetched. But I think this is an invitation to do some close reading. Yeah. I think we can all agree that Anytime there's an ellipsis, it's the author saying, please step into my parlor. I don't know if I agree with that, but I think that anytime they, like a character wonders something without coming to an answer, that is an invitation for the reader to do some wondering of their own. Speaking of some wondering, we have a letter today from Valentina of the Sea, who writes on Flame, Thunder, Broken Tree. Hello, pagers. Because of you, I've gone back and reread parts of the second book several times, especially the ones I had forgotten about. Let's talk about Flame, Thunder, Broken Tree. Disclaimer, I know about some Kingkiller theories, but I don't really go on the Reddit, so this one might already exist. Uh, In this chapter, Quoth and his fellows attack the bandits' camp, which ends up being way bigger than they had imagined, and to save his companions, Quoth pulls some seriously messed up sympathy. I love how Pat describes all of this, 10 out of 10. This freaks Martin out so much that he starts to pray. And as the bandit's boss shows up and shrugs off an arrow through the leg, Martin says, quote, Great Tellu, Tellu, uh, Tellu emphasis added, overroll me with your wings. Protect me from demons and creatures that walk in the night. Tellu, shelter me from iron and anger. Tellu, keep me safe from demons in the night. Tellu, who held. Tellu, whose eyes are true. Tellu, son of yourself. At this point, we get the line, quote, suddenly their leader paused and cocked his head. He held himself perfectly still as if listening to something. And then this one, quote, their leader looked quickly to the left and right as if he had heard something that disturbed him. And Quoth deduces that he can hear Martin praying. Martin continues to pray. Tell who who was Menda. And we get this line right after. Their leader turned his head as if to skirt the sky for something. Something about the motion seemed terribly familiar. At first glance, you might think that this whole thing is about how Martin is so freaked out that he is giving their position away, and that the leader can hear him because, as we all deduce, this is actually Cinder and he has superpowers. But my rereader brain says, wait, why did he look at the sky as if listening for something? Why did Pat choose to have Martin say the name Tellu in almost every prayer? We know that the nature of true names is such that powerful beings can pinpoint your location if you call their name several times. So theory time. Maybe Cinder heard Martin because Tellu is a true name. And he looks up at the sky because he's worried that his current position is being given away. He's worried Tellu might show up. Moreover, I think he does show up. At the end of the chapter, somehow, against all odds, and by some strange use of sympathy that I never understood, Quoth manages to call down lightning. And when he wakes up, Cinder has disappeared. This is a good time to recall how most things in the Quoth story are not really what they seem to be, the Dracus, and a good time to wonder if Quoth really did the sympathy himself and a shower of lightning strikes, or maybe those lightning strikes were not what they appeared to be and were instead the angels of Tellu arriving to destroy one of the Chandrian. Is this a crackpot? Maybe. But listen, doesn't it make more sense that Cinder left because his mortal enemies showed up and not because Quoth miraculously pulled off a feat that even he didn't think was likely and that is unlike anything else we've seen him do with regards to sympathy? 
Maybe he just accidentally called the name of lightning, you might say. But then, what was all the Telu stuff for? And doesn't it make sense that this is yet another misunderstood part of Crow's story? Me right now. Image of Charlie doing the Pepe Sylvia yarn wall. I might be really wrong, but I hope this was fun to read at least. I don't know how to end letters. Yours truly, Valentina from Uruguay, a.k.a. Valentina of the Sea. Wow. I love it. Well, and here's my question to you. Uh, insert gif of the little girl shrugging and going, Por que no los dos? What if the guy is praying to Telu and Cinder goes, Oh crap, what if Telu is listening to this prayer and shows up and disappears? And then Quoth unrelatedly calls the lightning and that's what seals the deal for th- for cinder and he goes oh shit that's telu lightning and cinder leaves and while we're tossing uh crackpot theories at the wall i'll do you one more what if telu is one of the chandrian what if uh telu's name can be called because he is actually one of the seven or even haliax himself and cinder is off the reservation and doesn't want to uh be detected by his chandrian fellows and that's why he flies the coop or what if uh, Telu is Cinder himself? Or what if it isn't really Cinder? Um, I guess what I'm saying is we don't have enough information, but I love Valentina's theory. I think it's extremely likely. I do agree that most of the sympathy we see Quoth do is well explained. And that, much like uh, her description, never quite sat right with me. Uh, I never really understood how that sympathy worked. Um, so I really like the idea that it was because of Martin's prayer, which is brought front and center and is... Uh, read diegetically uh, he's not just praying we don't just hear in the background martin is praying we are told exactly what martin is saying uh, so i think that the evidence is there i think that's some real good yeah, reading that Val. was really cool i'm I, I i'm i'm in i believe it you sold me on it <laughs> that would open this book up to a whole new set of themes you know if if it turns out that that is what happened and i actually am not convinced but if it turns out that that is what happened, then that opens this book up to like a whole new set of themes about religion and faith and the power of prayer, because religion takes on a whole new valence. If you can see concrete proof that your prayers are being listened to and answered by lightning coming out of the sky to smite your enemies. Yeah. That's why D and D clerics are sort of in a weird position because they're literally getting spells from their God every morning. But as we've learned from contemporary fantasy, whenever there is an established religion, it turns out that they're actually worshiping a big old demon and that the heroes need to go on a quest to assemble all the aeons uh, and, and kill it. Whenever there's an established religion in a fantasy story, it's always bad. It's always a secret demon. I think that you're you're right that that is a prevalent theme, <laughs> but I think that's the product of like most fant- fantasy authors being progressive to left wing in some sense, and thus kind of reflexively suspicious of uh, organized religion. But I put it to you that if you're like for me, like. Well, you know, the reason that I am an atheist or an agnostic is that, like, there's just no way to be sure that God is real. And I'm not willing to to believe in something that I can't prove. But if I had concrete proof that there was a God or gods, then I would be absolutely nuts not to throw in my lot with one of them. And frankly... Yeah, but you can't have faith without doubt. Yeah, well, that's why faith is something that I'm never going to get behind. But I don't have to have faith if I can have proof. And it makes... It, like. It's like it doesn't make any sense to not believe like to not get a god on your side if there are actual gods you can be sure exist. 
Well, I have a pitch for you, Jeremy. I have a force that holds untold power over your life. And through uh, a, a small amount of effort and ritual, you too can learn to leverage its power to influence the world in small ways that have large outcomes. I'm talking, of course, about Amazon Web Services. It turns out that Amazon is uh, an infrastructure company more than anything else, and you basically can't exist on the internet without interacting in some way with AWS, Amazon Web Services. You should really be boning up on your AWS skills because they are the equivalent of the railroads in uh, the, uh, I don't know, what, 1600s? They're, they're basically the roads of the internet and you <laughs> can't function without them. It's it's bad, folks. It's bad. And talk about monopolies. I don't know. When were they making railroads? <laughs> like, the, like the 1800s. You're, you're like 200 years off. Like, yeah. <laughs> like the pretty late 1800s too, right? They had Roman roads, right? In the 1600s, they had the Roman roads. They were... Sure, buddy. Sure. Anyway, we'll we'll <laughs> prove whether or not God is real and whether or not you should worship Amazon Web Services on tomorrow's page. Uh, the Wiz.